0: Welcome back to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Rogers. I just wanna remind you as we come into part two of the Meet the Transformers, that all of our guests uh, work in uh, incredible places of ministry uh, that are transforming their cities. You will wanna check out our show notes uh, because there you'll find links to all of these organizations. And let me just encourage you, to uh, head on down to a faith-based ministry like these in your city to see if there's something that you can do to help. And if nothing else, please pray as uh, every day they engage in the work of God's kingdom. Now let's go to part two of our interview, Meet the Transformers. What have you learned about human suffering that church life didn't prepare you for. And uh, I, I'm going to just put you on the spot, Doug, if you want to get this, this can of worms open, and then we'll start pulling them out. Thank you for that.
1: Um, I think the one thing uh, theologically is uh, I don't think we understand the central Christian symbol of the cross very well. I think that in North America, uh, we've sort of always heard of uh, the redemptive lift, come to Jesus and everything is going to get better. Uh, But we haven't really understood that God chose to redeem the world not by uh, getting rid of the problem, which is people, sinners, (laughs) but by entering the world and entering the suffering. So that suffering is really where you find God uh, most at work. And, uh, you know, our culture in the West here doesn't really understand any redemptive role for suffering. You'll find it in great pieces of art, uh, in literature, uh, and so on. But, you know, in, in popular culture, uh, there really is no like it, sense of what suffering it might be for it's bad. And I mean, obviously it's not good that people suffer. And we're all talking about in one way or another, relieving suffering. Right. But that's entering into their lives with them, isn't it? And, and so I I learned that, uh, that, uh, well, it might seem hard to say, but I think some people are called to live that life. It's a, it's, it seems to be their calling and no matter, um, Short of God's miraculous intervention, uh, which I don't want to discount, but um, people uh, suffer. and I mean it, every life to some extent. You know we would one of the things we would find with well-meaning church people would come, and we used to have the church teams that came to serve the food, uh, give a devotional. you probably did that back in your day. And uh, the presupposition, if you listen, was always, well, you're here in a soup kitchen because you suffer, and you suffer because you don't know Jesus. So if you just knew Jesus, you wouldn't have to be in the soup kitchen anymore. And, you know, there's well, there's some truth to some of that. That's uh, not true. And what I was surprised to find when I got to the ark is how many people did have a real Christian faith. Uh, their lives didn't look like anything <laughs> that you might have think of with terms of redemptive lift, but, uh, but there you are. And so I really had to start, and I mentioned to you years ago, Kevin, we really need to start thinking through a theology of, of suffering. And so where I've come to it is, uh, you know, the, the, the philosopher Gottfried Leibniz, his, his view of theodicy was This is the best of all possible worlds. So I modified that a little bit to say, this is the best of all possible worlds with us in it. Because God could have started over. He he didn't need to keep us, but he chose to. And that means he entered into uh, a broken world. uh, And he came to... Bring redemption through it. So it's out of that suffering, out of that cross. And uh, you know, C.S. Lewis said it that God, you know, whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts at our pains. It's often when, you know, he gets our attention. And uh, if if we don't, uh, you know, let uh, the the suffering uh, cause us to lose faith, then then you actually grow in it. And uh, I think it's. We need to understand that um, the suffering is, is where God is at work. And that goes back, in my view, to that, that first question about uh, who's the church. You know, I think and sometimes the church was afraid to enter into those kinds of social side ministries because they were afraid of losing the spiritual uh, you know the salvation, the evangelism piece, but I think, in fact, what the church has lost something in that, actually, right? And that is that that uh, understanding that God is at work in those hard places, and when the church removed themselves from that, they they really lost something. Uh, so I'm a little bit like uh, you know. Like Sarah said, uh, how you characterize the art. it is an expression of the church. But I came, I came to say, uh, this is the church. I don't know what those things are, <laughs> because this is where God is. real, And, of course, God is working there, too. But um, in more powerful ways, God, God is at work in those hard, hard places. And I think that, to me, too, is, you know, in the world of, Postmodernism, when people are pretty much done with, you know, the institutions, but they're responsive. I, I just read a thing today. I've been reading a book on secularism, and uh, the author, um, who's a practicing Catholic, but you know, he said that the church responds whenever they see or hear the real message of Christ. The world, the world responds to that. And you know, uh, I'll give you, you know little example when we were at the ARC, uh food was our thing and uh, we built partnerships by sharing. That's how one way how you get out of your silo give what you have and uh, so one of the institutions we shared with was the women's uh, agency down the street very secular, very your reputation you know anti, male, but we shared food and the next thing you know, we got this lovely little plaque. I don't know if Sarah still has it with little beads and stuff all plastered on it, you know, thanking us. Then one day we got a call saying, um, they had more clothes than they could give out. They knew we had clothing outlets. So could they bring us clothes? So the two ladies came down, never seen us before, walked in the door, headed straight to my assistant director and hugged him. Now you think about that dynamic that's the love of Christ in the hard places it breaks barriers people are hungry for that so uh, I think we really do need to understand that uh, go where the suffering people are you'll find Jesus at work it's not hard when he's there
0: yeah there's a um, there's a culture shock isn't there when we come from uh, a uh, comfortable, life background and uh, out of compassion or calling, uh, we we enter into uh, the suffering of others. Um, what are some things that you've learned about suffering uh, that you didn't know when you were uh, back in youth group, when you were uh, in, in a comfortable church that uh, didn't have too much suffering in it that you could see? What, what have you since learned? about suffering?
2: I can't talk about youth group. I grew up in Windsor, and we had such a small youth group, like it was me and my brother. But uh, And so there was suffering. There was suffering. Um, but um, I can tell you from my childhood, my grandfather was uh, schizophrenic, bipolar, and he was a pastor who was removed from the pastorate because at that time, mental illness was not looked highly upon. And... Um, He's the hero for my faith. So I learned from a young age that suffering was beautiful in in people. Um, So I'm super thankful for that because I, I've always looked differently. I feel because this, I painted, I I was an artist in school and we had to do a a painting and I did a massive um, homage to to my grandfather who was a weak, frail person. And I painted him in this very powerful way. Um, So I, I don't know. I just I I agree with Doug. Like suffering is where God is at work. And to be honest, personally, I've I've had some uh, suffering too, and I'm useless without it. Absolutely useless to anyone, uh, including myself.
0: There are some people that might think that uh, you know uh, we're being too too kind about suffering. That suffering's all from the devil, and that. You know, somebody following Jesus should have uh, a, a victorious life over, over everything. And um, but uh, again, I think that that's, that's an exaggerated perspective because every one of us are going to hurt in some way. Um, the Quakers uh, had a, an expression called uh, sanctified suffering. And, and what that meant was that, that God takes the really difficult, painful things that um, don't, don't seem to come from him, uh, they seem to come from somewhere darker, um, and uh, God takes those situations and somehow um, transforms uh, our, our nature, our character in the crucible of suffering, uh, because suffering will make you miserable and bitter, and it will make you die with a curse on your lips. Uh, but to, to understand that the suffering Savior, Jesus on the cross, I like what you said, Doug. Uh, we need to understand the cross better, uh, because uh, the, the things that uh, we learn about humanity from a suffering Christ... On the cross, our, our world shaking. Um, I want to read a passage of scripture um, from Acts chapter four, and this is a description of um, the the early believers, the early disciples. Acts four thirty two. All the believers were agreed in heart and mind. They didn't claim that anything they had was their own. Instead, they shared everything they owned. With great power, the apostles continued their teaching. They were telling people that the Lord Jesus had risen from the dead, and God's grace was working powerfully in all of them. So, I love this phrase, there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales. They put it down, at the apostles' feet, and it was then given out to anyone who needed it. This early church uh, in Jerusalem uh, seemed to eradicate poverty in their midst. Uh, One of their essential activities was the social work of caring for widows and orphans. And it came through everyone choosing to live generously and sacrificially to see that no one was without food, housing, uh, no one was without belonging to a community of spiritual care and nurture. Um, What do you think that churches, by and large, need to learn from the expressions of church that that you're involved in with relief and development. Um, Is, you know, that that same church in Jerusalem that uh, was able to eradicate poverty, then the city went into a state of famine later on, and uh, then everybody was struggling, everybody was poor. And uh, so uh, even then, after caring for everybody everybody else's need, they had to enter into their own state of suffering. And then God used the other parts of uh, his kingdom, other churches and other places, to start to care for the church at Jerusalem. Um, there's, there's a lot going on there. Um, so let's, let's unpack this idea here of sharing what you have and uh, eradicating poverty, but then also being able to uh, be cared for when you can't care for yourself when you're suffering. Um, somebody jump in there and, and uh, yeah, go ahead, Roger. You
3: Thanks, Kevin. Well, you know, I've mentioned different times and it's not, not always been popular, but I, I said it before and I'll say it again. You know, in Canada, we have poverty because we accept it right and it's a different time uh now uh society lives by how much poverty can we tolerate not how much we will eliminate you know we would never accept someone dying in a park from homelessness we wouldn't accept a child walking down the street struggling from hunger so we don't have that but you know four out of uh or one out of uh uh four children in windsor live in poverty one out of two if you're in the west end lives in poverty Well, except my child goes to school and sits beside a child that's hungry we can live with that the people back in the old church had made a collective decision that they weren't going to accept that that they were weakened by other people's uh uh, str- uh struggling and suffering you know, we don't have that consensus. And it, I've said many times, you know, there's going to be someone much smarter than me that ends poverty. Um, so I'll just try to change my side of the street. But, you know, the, the reality is there has to be a, ground, uh, a groundswell uh, shaking that makes people say, you know what? If a government comes up with an idea and say, you know what? We're going to end up homelessness, but uh, we're going to end homelessness, but it's going to cost you uh, $400 more a year on your property tax. <laughs> it will burn the house down. Yeah, 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 you know what I mean? But they'll go and give 500 to the mission, 500 to, you know, uh, uh, me, 500 to uh, uh, another, you know, uh, shelter you know, down the street because they don't want to be told where their money goes. But because that funding is so fragmented because you can't do anything with that. They give you 500 this time, but two, two young people overdose on the weekend, then it's going to go to recovery the next time. And then if, you know, something happens in the uh to a homeless person uh, then it's going to a homeless shelter and you can't build any kind of substantial uh and sustainable change with that mentality so it, it, you know the difference is in the old church they had made collectively a commitment that uh, as christians we're not going to you know even in the first testament it says if you see a man tethered to the yoke you know break the yoke you just don't loosen the strap you got to break the yoke and we have systemic yokes that create poverty in in this country. And we loosen the straps. We don't break the yokes. So
0: yeah, what a a thought that the reason we have poverty in Canada is because we allow it, because we're not fixing the problem. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike.
4: Hey, Kevin, I I think uh, as Sarah was talking a minute ago and and Roger is just talking. I think back to what what somebody said to me years ago, and that's that the church needs to get back in touch with Emmanuel God with us. So Emmanuel God with us implies in it that we are somewhere, and that is, it could be in our place of suffering. It could be in our our place of hurting. It could be in our place of of celebration and joy, but it's God with us. But there's a deeper part to that when we look at the fact that we are the hands and feet of Christ. We are his representation here on this world. So God with us is about us entering into those places of suffering with those who are hurting, those who are living in poverty. And I think if, if, uh, if I had one message for, for um, uh, the church today in reflecting on, on the first century church, it would be they got that they understood that that Emmanuel God with us meant that not only was he with us in our darkest of days but that we are with others in their darkest of days and and i know kevin you know i've i've spoken on this topic when it comes to christianity and social work most of the amazing social service programs we have around the world including education and hospitals and and, and everything came out of the church friendly visitor program and and we we forsook that, we forsook that calling, and it became God with them, mm. right? Or sorry, state with them, God with us, state with them, looking mm. after the poor. And and it's it's we are called to be Emmanuel, God with them. Mm.
1: Well said.
0: If
1: I can say. Uh, Something I think if you look at uh, the early church, they spent the resources on one thing. They didn't have a big overhead. (laughs) And uh, most churches, no matter what their mission statement says, spend most of the resources inside, looking after their, their own. And I'm not saying that that's altogether bad. But, uh, you know, i for the last few years, I've looked around and see churches. And, st- and I, I was involved with a building program in a church, so I, you know, in, in Wingham. But uh, now things are so expensive. I, I just don't think I'd want to be putting my name to those kinds of debts. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting now coming out of the pandemic. Uh, I think churches may very well be in a position to rethink what kind of resources do we need. Do we need to have a, uh, I mean, we often, as evangelicals, we would criticize another tradition for their great monuments and cathedrals and stained glass windows. We haven't done much different, I think, uh, in some respects. So again, it comes down to those, uh, what's your mission? Uh, I think Royal City Mission is probably a good, a good example there where they've, they have a resource that's a lovely building. So nothing wrong with that, but it's used for that, that outreach, not just in reach. Uh, you know, and we'll say that they're there for outreach. But, you know, we put them in suburbia. <laughs> you know, we have fled all the downtowns and that's why the Arcade Mission has to be that expression down in the Old East Village because nobody else is there. Uh, I shouldn't say nobody, but not, uh, but even the churches that are there cater to the, the you know, the, the uh, middle class, so. Uh, I, think it, I think coming out of this pandemic, maybe, there, maybe there'll maybe there be some rethinking of what exactly resources we need and how should we be sending spending what God gives us. Uh, I know that I've known over the years, a couple of people um, whose goal was to give 50% of their income to missions. And they weren't, not because they were millionaires, some of them were former missionaries, right? And so they lived a life of simplicity, And that's one of the problems that we think of suffering is we think uh, a good life is middle-class consumerism (laughs) in this culture. That's how people can be happy. Sometimes it surprises you, they don't have all that stuff. Uh, A life of simplicity and faith. And uh, maybe that's what God is starting to call us back to uh, through this time of suffering
0: well if the economy tanks uh, we'll all be learning how to live with simplicity and faith yeah kevin i saw your hand shoot up there i just
2: I, i i would agree with both these guys and and it's a really simple thing if you read that passage the believers knew people who were suffering yeah that's part of the problem they knew people who were in poverty i don't think uh, a lot of churches always know people who are suffering. They're disconnected from that. So for me, that we always talk about contact. Like if you don't know someone, you probably aren't going to give something. Why would you?
0: Sometimes when you're suffering, the um, the culture of of church can uh, antagonize that that suffering that you're feeling, rather than than bring comfort. Um, so we, we also need to learn how to, how to grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn and, and, and enter into the suffering of others and, and entering into suffering with somebody else isn't like, oh, you hurt so badly, you poor thing. That's not entering into suffering. That's, that's, uh, sometimes just your presence and your, your warmth and your friendship and, and the fact that you don't understand how badly somebody hurts uh, isn't always a prerequisite to uh, alleviating suffering, sometimes just recognizing that uh, I know you're going through something that I can't comprehend, but I love you and uh, I'm going to be with you. I'm, I'm going I'm, to, is there any way I can help? Can I help? carry the load with you and and not make your identity about my good works not make your struggle my project but no I'm I'm with you um and maybe that's something we're learning about God with us in our struggle in our suffering is is that um God doesn't just dish out ready-made answers all the time. Sometimes God, um, just like with Paul, you know, in his thorn in the flesh, he's got this horrible suffering going on. And God says, oh, my grace is what you need. He wanted healing, but God said, I think you need grace. I think you need to know that I, I accept you and I love you and even in this, you're um, you're not a lost cause. You're not hopeless. I'm with you. And uh, um, Robert uh, Lupton wrote a book entitled "Toxic Charity: How Churches and cher- Charities Hurt Those They Help." And I just want to read a quote from that book: "Giving to those in need, what they could be gaining from their own initiative." may well be the kindest way to destroy people we mean well our motives are good but we have neglected to conduct careful due diligence to determine emotional economic and cultural outcomes on the receiving end of our charity Why do we miss this crucial aspect in evaluating our charitable work? Because as compassionate people, we have been evaluating our charity by the rewards we receive through service rather than the benefits received by the served. We have failed to adequately calculate the effects of our service on the lives of those reduced to objects of our pity and patronage. Thanks, Robert Lupton. Uh, What do you think? Talk to me about how you move from creating dependency on your services to supporting initiative in the people you're helping and how do we promote the vision of the organization in ways that dignify the people that we are committed to serve.
4: Um, it's so exciting to hear the stories of, of life and and uh, people um, uh, having uh, believers journey alongside them uh, where there's life change. I think what Robert Lupton is sharing there in some ways is accurate. I think we can cultivate dependency um by by some of our actions but the need is there so it's it's kind of a um uh, almost like a chicken and egg which you were talking earlier kevin right are there is is the dependency there because of the need, is the dependency there because of our approach, because of our, our do goodism? And I think that's the issue is that um, even a lot of organizations who talk about empowerment, and, and we talk a lot about this and about our staff team, there's a false empowerment. There's a false empowerment that, that says, um, I want you to succeed but really i'm i'm helping you i'm i'm helping you do all of these things so that you can succeed Um, whereas actual empowerment again is it's that entering in and it's that getting dirty and and helping the individual discover what can they do and what can't they do what is getting in the way so we talk i mean people who come to matthew house from all around the world their literary skills literacy skills are, are all over the map there are some who are um, thoroughly university educated in English and, and not only um, have very articulate English um, spoken, uh, speaking skills, um, but, but uh, written and comprehension. Um, and, and then there are others who speak English very well, but can't even read it, let alone write it. And then there are others who have no, no English skills. So something as simple as that, we have people who will come to the office and, and say, um, in very clear English, I need help completing this government form. And, and I've had staff say in this, this idea of, of empowerment, well, no, you can do that. And, and that's it. Or I've had staff just go, okay, let me help you with that. That's not empowerment. Um, either of those. Empowerment is saying, okay, how, uh, what help do you need to do that? Um, what is getting in your way of doing that? Let's see if we can help eliminate those things that are getting in your way of your success. And I think that's what that what Robert Lupton was talking about is, is how we can, in our uh, desire to help, um, uh, step into the person's life and do for them what we think is best as opposed to helping them discover what's getting in the way, and and helping them deal with the the barrier. Um, and I think as as Christians again, it's it's that's where we need to need to enter in, um, and not do this this surface flyover ministry where oh yeah we're going to do you know this this outreach project or this outreach project. That's not entering in. That's that's just giving stuff away, which is cheap.
0: How can we be involved in breaking generational poverty cycles that that come through our doors? And 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 I guess maybe a a, a related question to that is is that something that we want more than they want? Uh, you know, uh, we we all want to see people thrive and do better. Um, but uh, this this whole aspect of are, are we doing it for them or are we helping them to do it and and is that actually what they want? Um, you know, I'm sure that uh, over time you get to know the, the the grandparent, the parent, the their kids, and then their grandkids, uh, and uh, and you watch and you say, why why are they still living? In the chaos that started, you know, maybe even before Grandpa, you know, uh, when do we see real transformation um, to the point where you know our being the helper is not really needed because they were able to with with some with our help help themselves? Uh, you know how to. How, do, how does transformation happen, that social lift? Um, and, and can you tell necessarily who is going to rise above and who's going to stay stuck? Um, because I think Jesus said, you'll always have the poor with you. And, uh, you know, I think there is that reality that, that some people aren't going to be transformed. But we can we can love them, we can help them, we can, you know, be the we can be their friend. We can we can be supportive in their lives and in the lives of successive generations. But you know what I'm talking about here, right? So let's let's um, let's dive in that pool now and talk about this whole idea of generational brokenness, generational dysfunction, and. And what, what's our role, if, if we're granted permission?
4: Can I... Uh,
0: Go ahead, Mike. and I Sarah? Sarah? Yeah.
4: I'm the youngest of seven children who grew up with an abusive alcoholic father. Mm-hmm. And um, while well, he worked for Chrysler's, it was in the days before they make the big bucks, um And uh, my mom and dad split up, got back together. When I got together, back together, like every six months. I think I'm li- currently living in my 32nd home, um, and and 26 of those were before I went to university. Um, but what made the difference is not only Christ, of course, but it was men and women of faith who stepped into our lives. For me, it was my, my uncle's mother-in-law and father-in-law who became grandma and grandpa Green to me. It was their son, Bob Green, who one Sunday at church when I was six or seven years of age um, caught me as I was trying to sneak off to play downstairs with the pastor's son um, <laughs> um, and said, you know what, Mikey, you're better than this. You know, in social work terms, um, there, and, and Sarah would know this, there are, there are risk factors and there are protective factors. We as the church are called to be protective factors. Sometimes we can't do anything about the risk factors. Sometimes we can't do anything about the mental illness. Sometimes we can't do anything about the addiction. Sometimes we can't do anything about the poverty that they're living in right now. But we can be that protective factor. And we don't know, Kevin, whether being that protective factor is going to make a difference or not. And that's the beauty of it. Uh, Bob Green made that comment to me. Um, uh, goodness, do was trying to do the math. I'm not going to because I would tell you how old I am. Many, many years ago. And, and I had the opportunity a few years ago to, to thank him and mention it to him. And he, he had no clue that that comment has stuck with me more than 40 years later, that that comment has helped frame who I am, helped raise me out of the darkness that I was in. Mm-hmm. It's that, that being the protective factor, being the salt and the light in the place of darkness, being the preservative agent, whether we know or not, whether we ever see the person rise above their circumstance or not. That's the beauty and the heartbreak of entering in.
0: What, when Bob Green said, Mike, you're better than this, what did you hear? What did you internalize in that moment that was, was not there before?
4: <laughs> Man, Kevin, you're going to make me cry. Um,
0: that's my goal.
4: Yeah, it's not always hard with me. Um, I heard I love you. I heard you're worth it. I heard that, you know what, your dad doesn't have time for you. Your big brothers pick on you. You don't have a whole lot of friends because you're moving around all the time. But you know what? I care about you. Come sit beside me. I care about you. That's what I heard. and, and that's that you know and, and by extension, of course, we know that that creates that bridge to Jesus. right? It's like when Jesus met with the person with the woman at the well, he didn't start with all of her sin issues. He started with water and he entered into relationship. And that told her, you know what, this is a safe place to be, and you are valued. And then he was able to speak truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, You might make us all cry, Mike. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Sarah, uh, you had uh, your hand up uh, before Mike. Was there something you wanted to chime in with there?
5: he he basically gave expression to what i was trying to say earlier with the when we glitched out there so you know that is what i meant by the poverty that people experience is is really different right there's financial poverty and i think your question here is you know what can we do to end this financial poverty that people live in but what mike's talking about is actually the answer which is to recognize that poverty is actually a, more a state of relationship and community mm-hmm. than it is a state of of financial uh, dollars and cents. Now, that's not to say the dollars and cents aren't a, thi- aren't a thing that needs to be addressed. The issue in my mind is that poverty, economic poverty is not an individual. There isn't an individual responsibility to solve that problem. This is a systemic issue that we as the church, as believers, we need to be standing up and we need to call it, this is unjust. Mm-hmm. This is unacceptable. I loved what Roger said. I guess we are comfortable with this, are we? Are we just accepting that this is okay? It's not okay. So in that regard, I don't see that as the, re- the responsibility or the you know the individuals that need to make change. It's, it's a system that needs change. And we as the church need to take action. On the flip side, I love what Mike just said, the poverty of relationship is something every believer can be part of, and it's why every organization here is talking about seeing people, seeing them. We for for the wish to be home project, we've chosen the words, beheld, beloved, belong. As as the you know what we are doing, and it's a housing project certainly, but more, way more than that. We see people. We we recognize them as beloved, and they belong. And I'm sitting here, I, I, I would just be remiss to be on this podcast with five men and not thank you for your role in society as fathers and, and men. We're coming into Father's Day. And my dad's been living with us for the last year and going through some cancer treatments and things like that. And, you know, he always said to me when I was getting out of the car, right from childhood, know who you are and whose you are. You know like know your character and know who you belong to and I actually really think like when you say what's the solution to poverty this generational poverty we need our men to step up and be dads we need our families to you know they don't families come in all shapes and sizes and I really I embrace that I also think we need to take on those responsibilities and love on our kids and you know seeing Doug hug his grandson there I think it was uh you know that's the job, that's the whole thing. That's what the, the solution to generational poverty is stepping up and owning our roles. And I thank each of you for what you do in, our, in your communities. I just wanted to have an opportunity to say that. Thank you, Kevin, for talking about this because it's so important for the church and for us as believers, but also just as men of the church. And I know we're in a, in a moment in time where it's hard to be leading. It's hard for everyone to be leading. Uh, whatever your background is, whatever the story is that you're walking in with. But, you know, I think if we can remember that it's not the fault of those who are experiencing oppression, that they experience oppression, it's the systems. And our job as leaders and those with privilege is not to to own and fix everything, but to call it out and change it. Like, let's make Mm -hmm. it different. So that's what I want to say about that. And thank you all.
0: Thank you, Sarah. You know, I, I, uh, I want to drag out the uh, proverbial soapbox. And one of the ministries of the church is to be prophetic. And uh, to be prophetic is to speak the truth in love. And uh, just as we're um, uh, winding down in the next few minutes uh, with, this, with this podcast, I want to give each of you an opportunity um, to speak the truth in love and, and, and invite uh, a little bit of prophetic edge out of you. Where are you seeing injustice? Where is your heart being broken? And, uh, and, and let's let's, uh, together name those, those broken things and, uh, in so doing, we call upon God to empower us all to respond to to broken systems, to broken people. And uh, so I'll start, and and then uh, no particular order. I want each of you to just take a minute or two to identify one or two things that we need to say. These things, because these these need these need God to show up. In the midst of human suffering, and I'll start with the first. Uh, in the past uh, year and a half of shutdowns, uh, there has been such undue suffering uh, for people in long-term care, people in group home settings and rest homes, and and um, you know, in the name of protection and and. Uh, making sure that they are healthy. Uh, there are so many people, uh, that, that have just been going crazy and dying alone in the name of health, in the name of protection. And, uh, that, that breaks my heart. Uh, my wife works in, in a, in a group home and, uh, you know, that there, there's gotta be a better way. And, uh, may god shorten the days of this suffering so that that people who are in great isolation no longer have to experience that poverty that's that's my prophetic pitch how about you roger go ahead and just unmute your mic there
3: hey, um you know during this time Uh, we we've seen uh, has been brought to our face uh the nursing homes the the minimum wage worker um the demands on on uh so many people in our society that that are crucial to our existence that uh we we've lived with the situation you know we're we're a funny culture in that you know uh uh we can go on strike for example in a place to to get uh $25 $25 uh, wage for a janitor, uh, and yet we can go to Tim Hortons and have no problem with the janitor there, you know, getting, you know, $14 an hour. And we've accepted all these things, these, all, all these systems that are embedded into our society that creates poverty. And we've had this catalyst, this pandemic has been a catalyst to bring into reality as to what, what's happening in society. It's going to be interesting when things go back it's going to speak to a, a a lot about who we are as a people uh if we just go on the same way you know um if it was okay when we didn't need you uh uh for you to live in poverty but we can top you up when you're when when we need you uh and then go right back again if we can close our eyes and go on with with uh you know we all go through the same things in life. It's ups and downs. Only thing that makes us different, and a lot of it, we've got nothing to do with, you know? Uh, it's our, our support system that's around us. How, how many floors can we fall through before we get caught? And the people that make it and the people that don't make it's just basically and uh, that, who, who was around them at the time, like you said, Mike, you know, uh, life could have ended up totally different for you and, and for me and for probably everybody. Um, but it will speak volumes as to who we are as a people moving forward in 22, 21, you know, the end of 21, 22, 23, whether we just go on going on, uh, then it just proves out what I said, you know, we're the 13th largest economy in the world and, uh, you know, capitalist societies, uh, can do one thing for sure. And that's solve money problems. Uh, so if we choose not to, that's, uh us a lot about who we are as a people
0: yeah thank you roger go ahead mike church
4: you're better than this Hmm. i'm going to say the same words that bob green said to me you're better than this you're called to be better than this you're called to a higher calling here we are still in this pandemic And just looking at the five largest evangelical churches in the city of Windsor, not including all of the other smaller churches and and, and non-evangelical churches, there's a combined estimated combined family income of about $238 million a year. If you tithe 10% on that, which I'm pretty sure a lot of us don't, still. That's $23.8 million. I'm pretty sure that those top five churches can operate on a budget of about $3 million without really impacting their operations at all. That leaves $20 million a year. That we are called to give, but either we are and it's being spent on other things or we're not given. And then there's, of course, our time. Here we are in a pandemic and there are people who are dying of loneliness. Are you picking up your phone and calling people? Are you checking in on your neighbors? That's being the body of Christ. Church, we are better than this. And I believe coming out of COVID, God is calling us to be better than this. I believe he's calling us like never before to truly enter into the lives of people in our community, to be his hands and feet, to let them see his heart. If we recognize that we are better than this. So that's my prophetic word that church be. Be his hands. Be his feet. Be better than this.
0: Ouch. And amen.
4: Uh, I
1: guess I'll go. Give Sarah the last word or, or <laughs> yeah, the other Kevin. Um, Jean Vanier, who's a bit out of fashion right now, but uh <laughs> He wrote regarding the disabled people that he worked with, but I think it applies to many of the marginalized folks that uh, we've all been talking about. That people have basically four reactions to them. Uh, one is fe- first is fear, the unknown. They look different. They are different. They s- then pity, then tolerance, and then. Uh, and, and and compassion, and maybe there's a fifth one. I guess he had maybe five. Uh, and that was a place of grace that when you touch them, you touch the face of God. And, you know, we've all in this conversation been talking about the church response of understanding, moving in that direction. But, you know, there are a lot of folks in our communities that would not be on that side. They still labor in the, uh, maybe in those stereotypes, uh, that that conservatism thing, bootstrap thing. And somehow in love and and prophetic voice, we have to speak to those folks too. Uh, Because uh, unless the church, I think, speaks in in a unified voice on this, I mean, it's a great opportunity, I think now, (laughs) right? This is the thing in the postmodern world. I think it gives us a right to be heard, and and uh, how a society treats its most vulnerable is is its measure. And r- right now, of course, there's a lot in the, in how Canada is treating its Indigenous folks. Uh, that's our uh, our measure, and it's not good in many respects. But it's much broader than that too. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I pray that uh, coming out of this, uh, that we really will um, understand where the face of God really is, and be there. And thanks for the opportunity, Kevin.
0: Thank you, Doug. Go ahead, Sarah.
5: I was going to let Kevin get the last word. <laughs> um so from from my perspective what I'm seeing in in the in the street and from the the prophets that are around me it's really them that that I've been seeing this through is that there's two things going on around us and fortunately part of it is life-giving there's lots of life-giving things that that are happening art creativity, uh, the hope that we can reconstruct our society at this time, like that, you know, what are, what will we do? How will we reconstruct after COVID-19? Um, you know, there's an opportunity for true life giving. And of course, we know the giver of life is Jesus. And I think it's just absolutely important that the church remember that Jesus came to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. And abundantly doesn't mean selfishly. It's, it's a life where we, we live in our, the wholeness to be sharing that constantly. We have that, that I don't need to worry about my tomorrow. I can give boldly because, and I don't just mean that financially, I mean this in every way. And when we think about restitution to our indigenous folks, when we think about um, the ways we need to show up around poverty, when we think about the property taxes that you're gonna need to pay next year. If we wanna do something different, we need to really be honest, transparent. I'm gonna live life, I'm gonna live it abundantly. And I hope for people that they remember that in their own poverty of relationship too. So I've heard that loneliness thing. Uh, This is also true in what's going on with the uh, opioid crisis. Here in London, we've had a number of people die uh, people that I knew and, and that I cared about here at the ark have died in the last couple of months and it's been just really sad to see and the life-giving part of that is the hope that that these folks have were loved. They were part of an abundant life. There was parts of even though that was the end that they were part of an abundant life. The flip side of that is the death dealing and i want to just declare and and speak this to the church that the church needs to be so mindful to not be part of the death dealing that happens this is the ways that we closet people we don't want to hear from them we don't want to you know i can't bring my whole self to church when we how will we gather again how will we come out of our loneliness or stay safe at home what will it look like are we going to welcome whole people with with their dirty Difficult challenges, the brokenness, the broken pieces of us. How we do that for one another will speak volumes to how we can show up to our communities. And so I just really want to encourage the church, let's not be death dealing, gossiping, tell, you know, damning people with our words, with our actions. We need to be welcoming. And so these are the two sides I see on the street all the time. There's death dealing actions. And there's life-giving ways of being. And that is a poverty that exists inside the walls of the church and outside the walls of the church. And so we as the church need to really, I think, begin to talk in the, that language and live in the wholeness and the fulfillment and the abundance that God has called us to.
0: Mr. Coghill. Wow.
2: Wow. I can't pretend to to think that this message is for the church, but I'll say it's for me. Um, me too. Stuff, been stuck on the word dependency. Like it's some bad thing. Um, we're called to be dependent. We're the body of Christ. I don't know. I, I feel like when this is done, we need to be interdependent. Um, and that And that doesn't mean we're giving handouts, even though we sometimes are. It means that We are also being saved from being saved. We're being transformed. We're being converted. And for me, that's the magic or the blessing of being part of people who are suffering. I'm continually converted um, again and again every day. I meet Jesus face to face, and and I believe that others meet him and me. Um, So I would just welcome other people into that.
0: Well, I just want to thank you all for uh, just filling uh, this this podcast with um, stuff that uh, is going to keep me up at night. And uh, this is so good. And uh, what I what I hear in all of us is this calling to the church to find ways to be present. You know, go into all the world. Well, going into all the world means being present in all the world. Uh, Go in all the world and make disciples. What better do we have to follow than than our Jesus? Who loves better than Jesus? And uh, so we'll just keep following him. We'll keep it simple. We'll follow Jesus wherever he is, and, and we'll be present with him and uh, see what he wants to do. And uh, when we suffer, we'll suffer well because uh, Jesus is, is with us. Thank you, friends. And uh, um, I can't wait to get this edited and out the door so other people can hear uh, everything you had to say. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. What a great bunch of uh, men and women involved in community transformation. And that brings us to the end of our quest acronym with the letter T. Part two, we had the last of the interview with Meet the Transformers. Uh, On our next episode, we're going to be uh, interviewing Kelly Franklin. In fact, it's gonna be a two-part episode because she had so much uh, to say that we couldn't fit it all into one episode. So please come back and uh, hear Kelly as she shares her story uh, from a life on the streets to now rescuing people uh, from human trafficking. An amazing lady and uh, her ministry is called Courage for Freedom. So come back, will ya? I'm Kevin Rogers and this is Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.